1788, the son of the leader of the Confederation of Futa Jalan in West Africa was commanding his 2,000 troops against a neighboring military force when he was captured. He was sold into slavery and spent the next 40 years of his life living as a slave in Mississippi. That was until a chance meeting revealed his true identity, which eventually led to his freedom and the involvement of the President of the United States. Learn more about Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sori, the prince who became a slave, whose emancipation became an international issue, on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Over the 300-year history of the transatlantic slave trade, over 12.5 million people were forcibly taken from their homes in Africa and brought to the Americas. Of all of the people taken in the slave trade, almost none of them ever saw their freedom or returned home. Many of them never even made it across the ocean, as conditions in slave ships were so horrendous. To that extent, this episode's story is very much an aberration. It's the exception, not the rule. Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sori was born in 1762 in the town of Timbo in what is today the nation of Guinea in West Africa. He was born to one of the most noble and powerful families in all of West Africa at the time. His father was Emir Ibrahim Sori, the leader of the Islamic state of Futa Jalan in the highlands of central Guinea. He was a brilliant military leader who managed to build his kingdom after defeating several neighboring tribes. His firstborn son, Abdul Rahman, was the heir apparent to Futa Jalan. As such, he was well-educated and trained. He attended the Islamic University in Timbuktu in what is today the nation of Mali. He studied philosophy and law and was reportedly fluent in four African languages as well as Arabic. 
He earned the title of Torodo, which was a 17th and 18th century term for West African Islamic clerics. When he returned home at the age of 21, he was given charge of a regiment of 2,000 soldiers in his father's army. It would probably have been the equivalent of a modern-day rank of a colonel. While out on campaign, he and his men were ambushed, and Abdul Rahman was captured by a neighboring tribe. They then traded him to British slavers for muskets and rum, who sent him, along with so many other Africans, to the Americas. In 1788, at the age of 26, he wound up being purchased by a plantation owner in Natchez, Mississippi, by the name of Thomas Foster. At the time, Mississippi was still technically a Spanish territory. Foster's plantation at that time grew tobacco, because cotton had not yet become the staple crop for that region. When Abdul Rahman arrived, he had his long hair cut, which was a symbol of his nobility, and was immediately put to doing hard labor. He did what you would expect. He escaped. I should note that in a later autobiography, he noted just how backwards and primitive he thought Natchez was when he first saw it, compared to what he had seen in places like Timbuktu. He survived four weeks on the run. However, he realized his predicament. He was in a foreign country, he had no allies, no money, and even if he could get to a port, he wouldn't be allowed to be on a ship back to Africa. He accepted his position that he wasn't a prince anymore and returned to Foster's plantation. His plan to ensure his survival was to make himself indispensable. And he did just that. Abdul Rahman was far more educated and smarter than his owner, who was uneducated and illiterate. He also had a particular set of knowledge that made him particularly valuable. Abdul Rahman was familiar with growing cotton, which was commonly grown back where he came from. Cotton was just starting to be grown in Mississippi, and he told Foster how to grow it. The plantation soon became the largest cotton producer in the region, and Abdul Rahman soon found himself managing the entire operation. He was a natural leader, made his owner a lot of money, and as such was given certain liberties. He got married to a woman who worked on the plantation, who served as a doctor and midwife, and they had nine children. He was also allowed to keep a vegetable garden and to sell his produce in town and keep the money. In 1807, almost 20 years after he arrived in Mississippi, he was selling his vegetables at the market when he had a chance encounter which changed the course of his life. It was there, in Natchez, Mississippi, Abdul Rahman unexpectedly met the Irish surgeon Dr. John Cox. Who, you might be asking, is Dr. John Cox? It turns out that decades earlier, Cox was serving as the surgeon on a British ship which sank off the coast of West Africa. Cox washed up on shore and was taken in by none other than Abdul Rahman's father, Ibrahim Sori. Dr. Cox stayed with the family for six months as he regained his health. He was the first European to visit the town of Timbo and became acquainted with the young Abdul Rahman. Both men were astonished to see each other, and Dr. Cox was especially astonished to find that this young man, a prince and member of the royal family, was a slave in Mississippi. Dr. Cox set it as his mission to free Abdul Rahman, not only to end the injustice inflicted upon him, but also to repay the debt to his family who helped him so many years ago. Cox offered Foster to buy Abdul Rahman's freedom, but he refused. He went as high as $1,000, which was a lot of money in 1807, but Foster still refused. Abdul Rahman's plan of making himself invaluable had worked almost too well. He was so invaluable that Foster didn't want to let him go, as his whole operation was dependent upon him. The other thing Cox did was to provide an independent verification of Abdul Rahman's story that he was in fact a prince. A story which, until that point, no one else really believed. The story of this chance encounter, and of the prince who became a slave, soon spread. A local newspaper reporter in Natchez named Andrew Marschalk interviewed Abdul Rahman and found out that he spoke Arabic. The fact that he could speak, read, and write Arabic made Marschalk think that Abdul Rahman must have been Moroccan, 
Abdul Rahman didn't bother to correct him because in the racial hierarchy of the South at the time, Moroccans were considered above West Africans, and this confusion about his homeland could help him get his freedom. Dr. Cox continued to fight for the freedom of Abdul Rahman until his death in 1816, when the fight was picked up by his son. The fact that everyone thought he was Moroccan is an important point, because Morocco was the first country ever to sign a treaty with the young United States of America. That treaty guaranteed the protection of Moroccan subjects in the United States. Abdul Rahman, being trained in law, became aware of the treaty and realized that this might be the loophole which could get him his freedom. The local newspaper man, Mars Chalk, helped Abdul Rahman send a letter to the Sultan of Morocco saying how Abdul Rahman wanted his freedom and to be reunited with his family in Morocco. Here I should note that while Guinea was far from Morocco, the Sultan of Morocco claimed an ancient protection over the Muslims of West Africa, especially royalty. Along with the letter, several pages of the Quran written in Arabic, transcribed by Abdul Rahman, were also sent with the letter to establish his credentials. By chance, the letter got to the Sultan, who petitioned the President of the United States, John Quincy Adams, for his release. The Sultan actually sent an emissary to Futajalan to verify his claims, and did in fact find out that he could be considered a Prince of the Moors. Secretary of State Henry Clay, not wanting to anger the United States' longest and first ally and cause an international incident, petitioned the President to free him. So on February 22, 1828, by order of the President of the United States, Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sori was freed after 40 years of slavery. However, his now former owner insisted that upon his manumission, he leave for Africa immediately as he didn't want him to enjoy the privileges of a free man in the United States. The story of Abdul Rahman spread throughout the country, and he took his time working his way up to Washington. People in cities along the way were fascinated by the story of the man who was a Moorish prince who became a slave. The reporter who helped arrange everything purchased a Moorish costume for him which he could wear when he addressed crowds on his trip to Washington. Along the way, he earned enough money to free his wife, but not enough to free his children. When he got to Washington, D.C., he had a meeting with President Adams. From there, on March 18, 1829, he and his wife set sail to Liberia, which had become a colony of freed slaves who returned to Africa. Word was sent to Abdul Rahman's brother, who had taken over for his father when he died. He was overjoyed and sent a caravan to Liberia to meet his brother and to take him back home. He did make the journey to Africa, arriving in Liberia. However, on the journey back, he became ill, and four months after arriving, he died in Monrovia, Liberia in 1829 at the age of 67. In the end, he managed to raise enough funds to free two of his sons and their families, both of which moved to Liberia. There are two interesting footnotes to this story. One is that Thomas Gallaudet, the founder of the American School for the Deaf in Washington, D.C., took an interest in Abdul Rahman's story. Gallaudet was part of the American Colonization Society, which had a mission of spreading Christianity in Africa. He met with Abdul Rahman and asked him to show his commitment to Christianity by writing the Lord's Prayer in Arabic. Abdul Rahman just wanted to make more contacts with influential Americans to help free his family, so he obliged by writing it down on a piece of paper. Years later, after Abdul Rahman had gone back to Africa and passed away, they discovered that he in fact had not written down the Lord's Prayer in Arabic, but instead had written the first chapter of the Quran. The second footnote to the story has to do with his children, which he was unable to free. They obviously remained in America, but because they had what was now such a famous father, his legend and the story of his royal lineage was passed along from generation to generation. The descendants of Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sori are still around today, and some of them have claimed royal status, consider themselves a royal family, and use royal titles. And some of them 
are still living around Natchez, Mississippi. Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Sori's case was used by abolitionist groups for decades to highlight the injustice of slavery. Long after slavery was abolished, his story has been remembered. He remains an inspiration as someone who kept his dignity and never lost hope, despite being denied his freedom for over 40 years. Everything Everywhere Daily is an Airwave Media Podcast. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. Today's review comes from listener Sparky with iPod Touch over at Apple Podcasts in the United States. They write, An excellent appetizer for everything. This show provides a wonderful introduction, or appetizer, to a cornucopia of different topics. It's not so in-depth as to get boring, but just enough information to let me decide if I want to know more or not, and gives me places to go find more, the main dish, if I want to, and even sometimes provides dessert in the way of personal experiences with some subject matters. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Sparky. Your username is interesting. Sparky is the nickname for the electric chair, which actually gives me an idea for a future episode. Also, I purchased an iPod Touch at the Apple Store in Tokyo in 2007, and it was one of the greatest purchases I had ever made at the time. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a boostagram, you too can have it read right on the show. <laughs>